Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Michael McKee, uh, now with his Francie Lacroix, uh, will join us this morning. And that is a good and beautiful thing. We've got David Kotak for the half hour. And so with that, Francine, let's set up the drama. No, not Mr. Trump and Secretary Clinton, but uh, Ms. May and Ms. Ledsom. What's going to happen here in 10, 12, 14 minutes? Is that refreshing, Tom, to talk about political mayhem and for once looking at the UK? So we understand from the BBC, Tom, so we talked about it on TV. Andrea Ledsom may quit, according to the BBC, her conservative leadership bids. Now, we only have two people that want to be conservative party leader after a lot of people decided to pull out. So this is according to a close close to the energy minister. Um, and this would be because they say the abuse has been too great. Mm. Now, what your point to Tom is the fact that uh, she had to apologize to one Miss Theresa May, who would become Prime Minister if Andrea Letsom were right. to step down. And this is after she suggested that being a mother made her a better candidate for UK Prime Minister. Yeah, remarkable. Sterling explodes straight up. And we want to uh, uh, make clear the BBC report and even the BBC says is unconfirmed. So it's a little fragile. David Kotak is never fragile in his perspective. And David, to help particularly our listeners in the United Kingdom uh, this morning, sterling explodes out to 129.75. That's uncertainty, isn't it? Uncertainty goes away, things go up. Well, speculating that this report is accurate, you lose an uncertainty premium and you get a market reaction at once. And we, we see it now. That market would turn right around if the news is not what right. is now expected. My concern here, David, you are expert at this, is when everybody's in the same trade, all my radar goes up. Sterling right now is a massive one-way bet. Weak sterling. Sure. Suppose you went the other way and for some reason Parliament didn't pass or rejected the referendum, called for another one, found a legal construction to reverse things. Now, we'd have a different kind of mess in Europe, but it wouldn't be this one. And it could reverse markets, but markets are now all on one side of a trade. And the trade is it doesn't look good for the UK with Brexit. But David, at least markets are now sure that Brexit will happen, right? We had a couple of bizarre days where they uh, were thinking about legals and saying, well, actually, Brexit may not happen. Now we have confirmation that you know the UK will be on its way out. It sure looks like it, and markets are adjusting to it. But we, we are only beginning to see, Francine, it seems to me, the early signs of the economic change. But what happens when we start to see jobs in the financial sector leave London? Where do they go? Where are the fragmented pieces going to end up? And some of that will go into the EU. Some of it will go to Paris and Frankfurt. Some of it will go elsewhere. This has to be revealed. As it does, these markets are going to change and adjust. David, overall, and this is right where I wanted to to, to ask you, are banks going to shed jobs as an excuse or will they really be hit on Brexit? I know it's too soon to say because we don't know about this financial passporting, but it seems like a great way to do restructuring, a painful restructuring, which you had to anyway. It would certainly 
be an opportunity if, if you and I were running a bank and we had an excuse to alter the form and structure of the bank, we would use it. And we wouldn't say we're doing it because of our internal profit motive. We would blame right. the political outcome. David, when, when, when I look at all of this, I go back to the Italian banks. You've written on this. What is your unique perspective on the volumes that we've read on what Italy will do? There's no choice because the European method is to expand credit, print money, inject capital, have the government fix it. Failures aren't permitted. So it looks like it's $40 billion coming into the banks in recapitalization. That's the number I've seen. $150 billion more in guarantees of, of a type that the European Central Bank will then be able to inject financing to because they'll accept Italy with a triple B credit rating as an acceptable sovereign. And so we'll expand credit, cheapen money, and preserve a system. They don't form a bad bank, move the assets, resolve, and take losses because that would mean an admission. And that's not the nature of the structure in the European Union. The same thing's going to happen in Germany. There's a bank in trouble there, too. We're, we're, we're going to see that type of resolution that says more credit, more expansion of credit, more activity in the credit, expansion of the currency, more QE for a very, very, very long time. But, David, why are the Germans playing hardball, right? So you're saying, like many commentators, that state support cannot sit with current bail-in rules. The Germans also have a lot to lose. If these bail-in rules are continued, then if something happens with the German banks, and it may well do, then they're stuck. I think, I think they're stuck until they figure out how to get rid of the bail-in rules because they saw that they didn't work. And they created such turmoil, the little bit of I involvement that bail-in had. And it alters the form of, of risk-taking on the part of depositors and users of banks. Who wants to put money in a bank when you can lose it? That's just not a concept we think about. And, it, and the structure in payments among yeah. and between the banks has made it worse because payments due from banks are no longer counted in the liquidity computation okay. under Basel III. You're massively skewed equity. I am. Is there value in Europe now? Yes. All these headlines, all this doom and gloom that Francine are, are doing, the investment guy in me says opportunity. Where's the opportunity, I, I, Mr. Cota? I think the European stock markets, now you've got to set the UK aside, the European stock markets are cheap, they have earnings yields in the high single digits, and they have an interest rate on sovereign debt, which is negative. Yeah. I've never seen anything like that. I mean, that. Francine's Japan too. total Francine of France is 5.87% yield. That's yeah. stunning. It is stunning. But, Tom, what I don't understand, and maybe David can you know, shed some light into this, is that so yields are suppressed. That's a flight to safety. But then stocks are up. The FTSE, we're seeing the FTSE, despite Brexit, despite all of these concerns, actually entering a bull market. From, it gained 20% from February. What exactly is going on? Do we just think that central banks can take care of everything all the time? But I don't know that we think they can take care of everything all the time, Francine, but we love long-term zero interest rate money in great abundance. It raises the prices of financial assets. And that's what we see a lot of places in the world. And we, we now see it in Europe. When Carney was on a track for a tightening policy and harder pound, 
the stock market struggled. Now we have a referendum that's turned that upside mm. down. UK is headed for zero interest rates, maybe negative rates, and the right. stock market loves it. History being made in the United Kingdom, we are fortunate Francine Lacroix is there. Francine, give us perspective on this moment for your United Kingdom. Well, Tom, until an hour ago, this was extremely unexpected. We had a two-people race. Andrea Leadsom announcing just a couple of minutes ago that she will pull out of the race to succeed David Cameron. Now, this paves the way for the Home Secretary, Theresa May, to become Britain's next Prime Minister. But, Tom, just one word of caveat. caveat I don't think it'll happen, but we will hear from the Tory committee chairman, Mr. Brady. He's essentially the man running the leadership contest, and he speaks in 12 minutes. So he either confirms, he could confirm that Theresa May will be Britain's next prime minister or yeah. unlikely, but he could also say we need a, a two-person race and therefore we go back to the drawing board to, to find someone that Theresa May can, can fight with. Okay, that's fine. But are we any closer to a general election? I think Americans are hardwired to go conservative labor. To be clear, we're not talking about that, are we? No, we're not at all. When you speak to investors, there was, I think, a post-Brexit shock, a couple of commentators that were saying, well, we need a general election. Yeah. But actually, Theresa May uh, is widely regarded as a safe pair of hands. Uh, we heard from her today pledging to crack down on corporates, including big business. I mean, it'd be very difficult, Tom, to see how Parliament could have a no-vote confidence at this point. And again, there was a law passed a couple of years ago uh, to make the government more stable. So then you'd have to reverse that law right. so that there'd be a a general election. Uh, you know, and I get that. And it'd be like us changing from the first Tuesday of November. David Kotak with us with Cumberland Advisors. Francine, let me go to you and you to David. This brings me back to the distinctions of conservatism in the United Kingdom, where going back to Disraeli in the 19th century, there's this odd thing called one nation conservatism. Theresa May and David Cameron are a one nation conservatism kind of Tory. Does that have anything to do with Brexit and leave? Yeah, Tom, I think Theresa May will find out more about how, she, you know, her blueprint for the future. But it, it surprised me. She's actually a little bit more conservative than, than we thought. You know, she she definitely um, makes David Cameron seem more of a socialist. She's, um, you know, on immigration, she's very tough. She's been very tough also on some of the business. So I guess m my question to David is we've talked about the fact that the clout that the UK had is being diminished by the day. What can she and the next Chancellor of the Exchequer do? do to regain that trust? Well, you've got to go through the Brexit process. I, uh, there's no way to avoid that. But in the context of this discussion of history and history in the world and the role the UK and the British diplomat has played in history is remarkable. And so is that character still intact? That's the test for the new yeah, prime and, and minister. To, to, me, to me, some of this, David, is they got to get out and sell the message, which you're seeing with the chancellor in New York today and with the prime minister selling airplanes out in the fields of Hampshire. I mean, part of this is once they get over the shock, whoever's running the show has got to go out and sell the message. Well, the, and the message has to have substance. And so there, the substance is unknown. The messengers have the capacity to sell it. And that cohesive new message is what we await, await. And what we do see now is this fragmentation until we get to the new message. 
the new package, if you will. Right. So they have to be truthful, David. Oh, yes. It's difficult, right, to, to, to send people out in the open and saying, guys, we're still open for business. I, I love the tweet that the chancellor said. We may be shut out of the EU, but we're still global and believe in the world. Well, hey, guys, we don't know if this country is going to see a recession and how tough that recession will be yet. Right. Uh, well, exactly. I mean, Francine, you have to you have to justify and prove what you say. Otherwise, you're right. seen as as having no substance and therefore you lose all credibility. Francine, I know our editor, John Micklethwaite, interviewed Disraeli a few years ago. But would you explain to me the conservative politics of a greater United Kingdom? How fragmented and polarized are they or is it just remain Tories and leave Tories? Well, they were fragmented, and uh, it, it was unclear, actually, until we had, uh, you know, until David Cameron called for a referendum, exactly how fragmented they were, because it was a party that unified almost unilaterally uh, from, you know, um, behind David Cameron, but it was very clear that they unified in the promise of a Brexit. So it has been ugly. It's been ugly on all sides. If you actually look at UK mm-hmm. politics at the moment, Tom, and I know you like to put the analogy with Games of Thrones, but the Labour Party is really nowhere to be seen, huge divisions. And the Tories, even when you look at the race with people backstabbing and Brexiteering and Brexecutions, like like we talked about them in journalism, yeah. it just makes for an ugly party. This is fabulous. We are so fortunate, David, to have Francine Lacroix giving wisdom on what's going on in yeah. the political United Kingdom. And, and we're making history. And in this remarkable world, a journalist yeah. in London is contributing to this discussion of the evolution of history in the U.S. to American listeners. Yeah. It's a marvelous world. Can you stay world. in the market? I want you to reaffirm equities right now. You can buy 25 multiple blue-chip dividend-growing stocks. Uh, well, I buy them in baskets using ETFs. The answer is yes, because the earnings yields are so enticing and the sovereign debt yields yeah. are at zero well, and they're going to be at zero for a long time. This has been great. David Kotak uh, with us with Cumberland Advisors. Thank you so much for your you. uh, time this morning. I will say in advance that this will be our most important podcast of the day. Michael Darda is with the MKM Advisors, and uh, he's truly one of our more enduring uh, guests. We could talk today, Michael, for three or four hours. We don't have that time with you, so I want to cut right to the chase. You made headlines a, mu- a, th- a month ago, three months ago, with declining business investment in America. Is it still there? Tell us about the supply and demand, the business dynamic of the American economy. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Um, Look, we're still in an environment of slow growth, uh, weak business fixed investment. And, you know, two key things for the listeners to think about in trying to sort out what what these latest jobs figures tell us uh, is that with profits weak and with capital spending weak, it's pretty unlikely that we're going to sustain June's job figure of 287K. Um, really, you know, I think what the listeners should be doing is averaging together the very weak 11,000 uh, reading for May uh, for non-farm payrolls and what we saw in June. And if you do that, you're closer to about 150,000 as a run rate, which is a fairly steep slowdown from where we were, say, in yeah. mid to late 2014 and, or, and uh, you know, in, in last year as well. 
What is the outcome? And, and you spend a lot of time looking at nominal top-line GDP, our real economy, plus inflation. Give us the data update on animal spirit when you look at such a relative disparity between the United States and a troubled Europe and United Kingdom. Absolutely. Well, year over year, nominal GDP, real growth and inflation, is running just above 3%. The average for this six-year expansion has been closer to 4 And this is the third time in a row that nominal growth has faltered to the low end of the six-year range after the Fed has halted a QE program. So, you know, our view has been that the tapering of QE and the end of QE were forms of monetary tightening, not just the December rate rise that occurred right. last year. And so the nominal growth figures tell us that. Now, there's some optimism that you know growth looks like it's bouncing back a big bit in the second quarter, but I would just focus uh, listeners on the bond market measures, these low yields, a sinking yield curve, and very weak inflation expectations. Right are telling us that the market doesn't really think that uh, the Q2 bounce back is going to be sustained. Francine, I'll probably do this chart tomorrow on TV. 4.3% nominal GDP. Now we're down to 3.3. We've taken a stick, one point, out of our animal spirit in in the United States. That's something, Francine. Yeah, it is something. And Tom, we want to go back to, you know, the fears basically that we had maybe just five days ago about the U.S. economy and the labor market abated a little bit. But Michael, when you look at the global players, right, the U.S., let's say the EU and Japan, they're not all doing their bit to stabilize the global economy. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, um, it's very interesting because if you look at the nominal GDP trends, say, in the Eurozone in Japan, they've actually done a, a little bit better in recent years following the QE programs in those countries. But the credit markets, the bond market measures I mentioned, recently have been weakening everywhere. So it looks like investors don't really expect those better numbers to be sustained. And at the same time, we've had a pretty steep slowdown in nominal growth in China in the emerging world. So as the Fed shifted towards tapering QE and then ending it and then raising interest rates last December, nominal growth in the U.S. slowed, and nominal growth in China in the emerging world slowed sharply. So that, in my opinion, really explains the huge commodity price crash really starting in the middle of 2014 and extending into the first few months of this year. But so, Michael, what's the, the sweet spot for the economy or, or for globals? Is it good enough news? You want good enough news to know that we're not getting any worse. But actually, if you get good news, that means that central banks may start holding off. Yeah, it's interesting. Another good question, because unfortunately, if we have to discuss the productivity statistics, you know, those don't look very good in the United States. And in other countries, they've been weak as well. But for the U.S., we're just averaging 0.5% per annum on non-farm productivity uh, since 2010. The labor force, working age population growing at about the same amount. So it looks like growth potential may only be running about 1% per annum. And if you add the Fed 2% inflation target to that, that gives you about 3% nominal growth. So anything above that probably means the Fed tightens to slow things down. So unfortunately, you know, the 3% figure on nominal growth may be about as much as we can expect in the U.S. from here on out. Also, you know what else that means? There's a lot of talk about fiscal stimulus and the need for it, uh, but it won't do anything if the Fed offsets it with tighter money. So, you know, I don't think fiscal 
stimulus is really going to do anything for us in the U.S. at at this point in time. So we are here with a most interesting day. Michael Darda uh, helping us out here. Michael, let's link your economics over to a fully priced equity market. Are equities now so priced that they are a bubble? Or is there a Darda rationalization to owning these priced earnings ratios? Well, Tom, uh, the word bubble is very popular now, I think, unfortunately, because rates are low. So a lot of people mistake that for overly easy monetary conditions and bubbles. But rates are always low if nominal growth is low and inflation is low. And equity prices will tend to be high if investors think those conditions will be sustained. So I don't think we have an equity bubble. But what we do have is an aging economic expansion. We're seven years into it, the longest one in history in the U.S. has lasted a decade. You know, we're starting to see the data points that you would see when you're moving into the later innings of a cycle. Profits peaking as a share of GDP business fixed investment weakening the fed you know already having started mm-hmm. um you know a, a monetary tightening and so you know i think we could be in the last year or two of this business cycle expansion and that's really what investors need to worry about in terms of the stock market because typically bear markets are linked to recessions and typically recessions feature a 20 to 30 percent stock market decline but, so we, have, but we, ha- some, yep. we haven't seen a hint of this. We are addicted to the new bear market is negative 7%. A lot of our listeners have never experienced this, have they? Well, you know, we certainly have had some volatility uh, over the course of the you know last year, year and a half. So, you know, the S&P 500 is at a new nominal high, but, you know, it really hasn't made a tremendous amount of net progress over the course of the last year. And we've had some fairly steep drop-offs as investors have become worried about you know, the fate of the business cycle. We were down almost 15% from the highs, um, you know, just in the opening month and a half of this year. And so it's important to put it in, in context. So we'll stay up at elevated levels if investors feel like the business cycle is secure and we're not falling into a downturn. But I would think that, you know, that assumption probably will be challenged sometime in the next year or mm. two. So my view is still a more cautious one, unfortunately. Right, Michael, but th- this to me, it seems very intuitive, right? That you're cautious because everywhere you look, there's there's nothing great. Sure, we're not falling off a cliff, but there's nothing that you can say, right? I'm I'm confident about this, and it's good news. So, where where does all this bullishness come from when you look at equities? Well, I'm not sure that you know that we're seeing a you know as much bull- bullishness as widely assumed, simply because equity markets are at, are at elevated levels. I mean, that's what you'll tend to see in a low-growth, low-inflation environment that investors feel is, is sustainable. So the risk here is that if that feeling of sustainability starts to change, that's when, you know, we could see the equity market uh, take a, a steep fall. And and so, you know, that comes down to where do you think we are in the business cycle? And if you think we're in the eighth or ninth inning, as I do, then you want to have a more conservative approach to investing. And this is something we've been advocating really since last summer. And, you know, that's served investors well if that's what they've been doing. I mean, the bond market's actually done quite well, better than stocks over the course of the last year. You know, now the yields are at very low levels, and so that's created some concern that there's no value there. But as a shock absorber uh, against market volatility or a sharp market decline, you know, having some funds and cash and bonds has certainly been helpful over the last year. 
Uh, Michael, Japanese shares today posting their biggest gain in almost five months. This is at Shinzo Abe uh, one, and investors are hoping or thinking that actually we're going to get more stimulus and it will come sooner than expected. Does the world need Abenomics to work to make sure that growth doesn't leave? I think so. You know, Japan's equity market has done very poorly this year. And more worryingly to me, bond market inflation expectations in, in all the major economies, but yeah. in Japan in particular, yeah. have just completely fallen out of bed. And, and they were having some success with right. the QE program, but for whatever reason, markets have come to doubt uh, the <clears throat> BOJ's ability yeah. or willingness to sustain it. And so we're probably seeing a marginal reversal of that. So that's good news as far as it goes. Michael, I'm looking at a photo of you from Italy with a laureate, Robert Mundell. I'm counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven bottles of wine yeah. on the table. I, I want to con- only cappuccino. Oh, oh. Only cappuccino for me, Tom, today. Yeah, I would get. It. What have you learned from Professor Mundell and others about the struggle that Italy faces right now? Oh, it's a great question. You know, I've been thinking in Mundellian terms since we've been out here for you know for Bob's economic conference and. Yeah. If you think about the shock that the global economy went through from, from 2014 into 2015, as the Fed was tapering and ending QE and signaling rate rises, what happened? The dollar exchange rate soared over 20% in a very short period of time, and that put mm-hmm. tremendous pressure uh, on any country that was you know, dollar-linked right. or close to being dollar-linked. China's the biggest economy in the world. It has a quasi-peg to the dollar. And so that's that explains, you know, these disruptions with a huge commodity price crash. Right. We had a credit market crisis okay. to some degree. Corporate well, we're gonna, coming in Michael, we're going to have to leave it there. Michael Darda in Italy, drinking wine. We're not. Roger Boodle joins us now from Capital Economics, of course, writing in Worldwide Red in the Telegraph as well. Roger, I want to get to fiscal policy, which you're writing about right now. But first of all, Uh all my radar is up. Everyone in the world is screaming weaker sterling. You know, okay, I get it. I understand sterling could weaken. Could we be shocked by sterling stability here? Well, I've been thinking that the pound needs to fall for quite some time. And then, of course, along came the Brexit vote, and it sent it a lot lower. Now, I happen to think that this sort of exchange rate against the dollar, it's about 130 against the dollar, uh, and indeed where we are against the yen, that's probably about right. I, I don't think there's any need for it to go a lot lower. That's not to say that it won't, but uh, I don't think there's any need for it. And my, my worry, by the way, thinking as a you know, British national concerned about the British economy, am I concerned about the pound fall? a lot further? No. Am I concerned about the pound recovering? Yes. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time this has happened. It wouldn't help Britain. Mm-hmm. I think this is around about the right level. Roger, how concerned are you about the UK economy? You're saying you're concerned, but this is this uh, recession's a given and it's going to be tough to get out of it? Or this is just a mild recession and then things will get better because we'll have a plan B this time around? Well, of course, you can't see me, but if you could see me, you'd see that I was, uh, uh, well, I've been around the block a few times, shall we say. Uh, and uh, I've been around the block enough times to realize that nothing in economics is certain. I keep hearing people saying, oh, recession's baked in. A load of old nonsense. Uh, I mean, it was true. 
I think, that before the Brexit vote, the economy seemed to be slowing a bit. And it might well have ended up in recession without the Brexit vote. You know, my best guess, but I can't dignify it by describing it as anything better than that. My best guess is that we'll probably just about avoid recession, but the economy will slow a bit in the near term. Now, of course, the long term is a different matter. And when you have a vote on something as important as we had a vote on, frankly, you shouldn't really be obsessed about the next few months. Right. Roger, you're a UK citizen. Tom and I aren't. What do you hope for your country? You are going to have a new prime minister either today or in the next couple of days or maybe weeks. She's going to be Theresa May. How should her negotiating tactic with the EU be? Well, I think, first of all, she should uh, conduct some exploratory, exploratory talks to find what their frame of mind is and whether they're going to mm-hmm. play ball or whether they're going to be playing hardball, as it were, to use your expression. Um, now, if it's the latter, then I don't think that Britain should stand there as a supplicant and begging and saying, oh, please give us this, please give us that. You know, uh, there is an alternative, which is to operate under World Trade Organization WTO rules and to declare unilateral free trade. I I think that's actually quite an attractive option. I would certainly prefer that to the prolonged uncertainty with Britain trying to get a trade deal, the EU saying, well, no, you've been naughty boys and are sitting here for a long time with business uncertain. I wouldn't like that. I, I look, Roger, where we are Chancellor of the Exchequer Osborne in New York, the Prime Minister speaking today, flogging Uh airlines or buying airlines or whatever. Prime Minister May has to go on a massive sales campaign of her nation. Am I right on that? That the tone has got to be set, whatever anybody's politics? Yes. I think that is right. But um, I wouldn't be doing it in a spirit of desperation. Quite the opposite. I mean, we've been here before 1992 when we came out of the European exchange rate mechanism comes to mind and people were all terribly gloomy. And in fact, what turned out is that was our salvation and we surged ahead thereafter. I, I, I think, you know, you can overdo the importance of trade deals. When your President Obama came over to Britain, he said that uh, be under no illusions uh, that uh, if you come out of the EU, you'll go to the back of the queue for trade deals with the United States. And various people picked mm-hmm. up on that, the use of the word queue, which you in America, I don't think you use, you say line. And various people thought that meant that his speech had been written by number 10 Downing Street. Well, I replied in a newspaper article, I said, I'm going to cross the linguistic of, uh, divide and similarly use a term that's not used in the other country. And I said, what's the extent of Britain's trade deal with the United States now? Answer, Zippo. We don't have one. We don't have a trade deal with the United States. And yet, look at how close our trading links are. They're incredibly close. So I I think you can overdo this stuff. Prosperity does not emerge from the tip of a politician's pen. It emerges as a result of what business people do. What will Labour do from where you sit? And I'm going to assume that you're sympathetic to conservative politics. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, you're right. What would you expect to see... I mean, we in America are sort of baffled why it's just about Tories right now. If there is a general election at some point, what would be the tone from Labour? Do they swing to Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling politics? Where where do they go? Well, 
And you don't have to be in America to be baffled. I tell you, we're baffled as well. Uh, I mean, the Conservative Party, I won't say it's in meltdown, but it's in disarray. We've had this ugly uh, division within the party between Remain and Leave. And don't forget, you know, most Conservative MPs were in favour of remaining in the EU. So they've got a job adjusting themselves to all this. Now, as far as Labour's concerned, well, this is it. This is just incredible. I mean, Labour is tearing itself apart. Jeremy Corbyn, the leader, is very far left. I suppose you would say in many ways he's to the left of Bernie Sanders in your country, and he's much less effective than Bernie Sanders. He's extremely disorganized, and he can't command much support from the the parliamentary party. We don't know if um, Angela Eagle, his challenger for the leadership, wins, and yet another woman in charge. We don't really know what she would be like, but at least she'd be pretty competent, I think. She'd be well to the right of Jeremy Corbyn. She believes in renewing Britain's trident nuclear deterrent. She's not strongly anti-business. It would be interesting. I think, you know, if Labour could hold together under the leadership of someone like Angela Eagle, then the Tories might yet have a fight on their hands. Roger, talking about businesses, do you think that uh, banks, big US banks, other European banks will leave London because either they don't get access to the single market or this passporting, or just because London becomes too expensive? And if they do leave, is that good riddance? Well, no, it certainly wouldn't be good riddance. It'd be a major blow to London, but no, I don't think they're going to leave at all. Uh, on the contrary, after the exchange rate change, of course, it's cheaper now to be in London than in a whole lot of other European centres. What I think is going to happen is that because of European regulations about passporting, that some jobs and some financial operations will transfer to the continent. But I think these are going to be mm-hmm. quite marginal. I mean, the fact of the matter is London's tremendously attractive. It's an attractive right. place to live, and it's an attractive place to do business. Yeah. You've got to got, got to have been to Frankfurt okay. <laughs> to compare the two. Yeah, yeah I, I would... Mean, I, like going to Peoria, yeah, Illinois. I would go with that. Roger Boodle, Capital Economics, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.